I've quoted some long sequences in this series, and I make no apologies for giving precedence to better wordsmiths than me, and drawing on first-hand accounts. But I think this is the longest tranche of someone else's writing I've given voice to, because Kevin Walton revelled in working with his dogs, and characterises the trail experience in detail, with prose that borders on lyrical. Quoting from Two Years in the Antarctic. For me, the day always starts in the evening, when the leader of the party decides to make camp. It has probably been blowing all day with a bit of crosswind, and the loads are still pretty heavy. We've had to help the dogs a good deal, and our anoraks are hanging loose outside the trousers to keep us from sweating. The party is four men with three sledges, travelling like ships in a line ahead. The front sledge, with John Tonkin driving it, carries a complete load for him and Doc Butson, who is with him. Dougie Mason comes next, with a load that consists mostly of dog rations, and I am tail-end Charlie, with another camp load for Mason and myself. Each sledge has its own ice axe and alpine rope on top of the load, where it can easily be reached should an emergency arise. John looks at his watch, turns into the wind and stops, for he had told us at dinner time that we would camp at exactly six o'clock, and in the poor conditions, we all have been counting the minutes. We close up on him and turn the dogs into the wind too, so that our sledges finish up side by side, yet five yards apart. Straight away, we tether our dogs in groups of three, staking them down with light hickory stakes driven deep into the snow. We have tried other methods of tying the dogs up at night, but have found that this is the quickest, and by selecting dogs that are friendly to each other for each group, it makes for peace in the camp. The other method that we tried and discarded was to use a long wire pegged at each end and fitted with chains spaced at intervals down its length but we found it slower and much less certain. As soon as all our dogs are tethered, and as quickly as possible, we deal out the dog food, still wrapped in its paper. Dog feed time always imposes the greatest strain on our tethering arrangements. The dogs are hungry and excited, and the mere rustle of paper or the opening of a pemmican box sets them all off. After a meal, they soon settle down and their twistings and turnings as they select their patch of snow for the night soon consolidate the snow around the picket, and then, acting on the lamppost principle, they quickly cement it into position. As soon as the dogs have been fed, the sledges are unlashed, and in the strong wind it is necessary for all four of us to take a hand with each tent. It is laid out on the snow with its peak pointing upwind, the poles spread wide apart, and the upwind corners of the snow flap held down with spare ration boxes. With a quick flip, the peak of the tent is lifted, allowing the wind to catch it, and as it bellies out, the downwind poles are opened out and stamped in. Some snow around the flap and a few more ration boxes, and all is quite secure, and it is safe to put up the other tent. Once this is up, each tent's occupants fend for themselves. Dougie, the inside man for the day, prepares to go into the tent, brushing every bit of snow off his clothes before he enters. Snow inside a tent that is soon to be warm means melting, and water means a damp sleeping bag, which in turn means a cold, sleepless night. Inside, he spreads out the ground sheet, brushes off his feet as he draws them in, and shouts that he is ready. 
We always carried the sleeping bags and reindeer skins inside a large cotton bag, made like a large pillowcase. To save brushing the drift snow off, it was only necessary to push the open end of the bag into the tent entrance, and the inside man could draw the bedding inwards, leaving the bag to be shaken free from snow outside the tent. Each bed is rolled out along the sides of the tent with the reindeer skin underneath, fur side uppermost, as mattress. Between the beds there is a space about two feet wide which serves as a kitchen. The box full of pots and pans is brushed clean and passed in next, and placed between the feet at the far end of the tent. The ration box that is in use forms a doorstep just inside the entrance between our heads, and the spare box which contains the wireless set and medical kit is left outside as an outer doorstep. The two empty cooking pots are pushed outside for me to fill up with snow. There are still a few more things to be passed inside. The two kit bags of personal clothes, the survey board on which the daily march is to be plotted, and the wireless aerial that is threaded in through the ventilation tube at the peak of the tent. It is time for Dougie to undress and make the place warm. He removes his windproofs, which are large enough to slip off very easily, and hangs them and his gloves and duffel slippers in the peak of the tent to dry off. He changes his socks into some spares that he had dried off during the previous night, and then slides down into his sleeping bag. Outside, I lay all the unused ration boxes around the tent flap, and turn the unloaded sledge upside down to scrape the runners and brush off the snow. The whip, which is popular for chewing gum to any wandering dog, is coiled up and placed inside the tent door on the left-hand side, between the inner and outer tent, and the current two-gallon tin of paraffin joins it. The dog traces have been collected and coiled up, and all the loose bits and pieces, such as ice axe and skis or snowshoes, are stowed neatly outside the door. I have dug up a supply of hard snow with a high water content, and placed it on the right side of the door between the tents where it represents our supply of drinking water. The maximum and minimum thermometer is clipped onto the ice axe just outside the door, and I am now able, after a last look around to see that nothing is left loose, to bid good night to the dogs, brush the snow off my clothes, and enter the warmth of the tent. Inside, in strong contrast to the wildness outside, all is cheerful and warm. I slip off my windproofs and boots, hang up my clothes in the roof of the tent, and slide down into my sleeping bag to watch Dougie, as cook, preparing supper. If we have been efficient as a pair, there is no need for either of us to leave those sleeping bags until it is time to break camp the next morning. The cook can reach the rations, and the hard lumps of snow that are the water supply are just behind his head. If the Primus runs low in paraffin, the spare can is quite close, and if the dogs are restless, they are sighted where they can be seen from the tent door. The noise of the Primus drowns the sound of snow driving against the tent in the rising wind. It is only 20 minutes since we stopped, and already we are warm and comfortable. I roll around in my bag and decide the snow under the reindeer skin has too many queer lumps in it, so, using my hip as a battering ram, I vault my bed into a more comfortable shape and form a large pit for my hip and backside. 
Dougie is busy melting the snow and then reaches for the tins of half-used rations. He chips the cold pemmican out of the seven-pound tin and sprinkles it into the hot water. Two large dollops of butter follow, each the size of an egg. Three or four dessert spoonfuls of pea flour are stirred in and some salt is added. Supper always consists of pemmican made thick like blancmange or thin like soup, according to taste. While it is coming to the boil, he distributes the portion of the day's ration which we are allowed to use as we think fit. Into my food bag, he slips a packet of biscuits, 20 lumps of sugar, a slab of chocolate, a dollop of butter and a knob of pemmican, which will be kept for lunch the next day. After this, the pemmican hoosh only requires a couple of minutes to boil and is ready for consumption. We invariably had a make-believe weekly menu to help us remember the days of the week. Dougie would remind me that it was Sunday as he passed me my pint mug of pemmican, referring to it as cold meat, salad and baked potatoes. I would slide partly out of bed, break a biscuit or two into the soupy brew and get on with supper. Meanwhile, Dougie is melting more snow and is brewing up the evening's cocoa in the other pot. He would make it thick and sweet using lots of milk and sugar so that by the time the pemmican was finished the cocoa was standing ready. In spite of the very limited size of our supper I always felt full to capacity at the end of the evening meal. On one or two occasions when we had surplus rations we tried to eat more than our fair share of pemmican but always found it rather a struggle. We would not think of turning out the primus after supper for all the clothes in the peak of the tent would still be drying in readiness for the next day. It is always a case of giving the Primus another pump and using the extra warmth for some useful purpose. After lighting a candle, Dougie would reach for the survey board and plot in the day's course. I might well dig into my kit bag and produce a sock that had become thin round the heel and required patching. Later on, I would connect the minute American RBZ wireless receiver to the aerial and tune into London and the BBC, using the excuse that we wanted a time signal to waste precious battery hours listening to the 9 o'clock news. It somehow emphasises the remoteness of life to hear the measured tones of the BBC newsreader, telling of events in the world outside which we, in our remoteness, had tended to forget. Often, I would use the last flickerings of a primus to write a few more lines to folk at home, and would invariably add some more to my diary. After an hour or more, we would wind up the chronometer watches, set the alarm clock, shout goodnight to the other tent, and let the primus go out. Lulled by the noise of the wind on the tent, we would wonder what the next day would bring. Dougie and I always found that we slept deeply, and had the most vivid and topical dreams in the moment before waking. They were dreams of a richness and clarity that we had never known before. One morning, I woke in worried horror and announced to Dougie that I had been married the night before, and had recognised the church, the congregation, and my father as he took the service, but the bride's identity was quite unknown. Two years later, when the dream became a reality, the whole ceremony seemed like a repeat performance. In the night, the wind died down, and as we wake at 5am to the sound of the alarm and peep out of our sleeping bags, 
The whole of the inside of the tent is shimmering white with lace-like crystals of hoarfrost. A rapid move or a vigorous uprising and the whole lot would shower down. So Dougie's hand slides out of his bag, feels for the matches and lights the primus that he had primed the night before. His hand slides back and through a small opening in his sleeping bag, he watches the warmth of the primus turn the hoarfrost crystals to water vapour, which leaves through the ventilator in the peak of the tent. Porridge is ready in 20 minutes, for he used some water he had stored away in a thermos the night before to save the tedious process of melting down snow from scratch. It is a thick porridge, enriched by a dollop of butter, a spoonful or two of powdered milk, and some lumps of sugar dissolved in the water before cooking started. A mug of cocoa follows, and 40 minutes from waking, it is time to get dressed and prepare to leave the tent. It has been a pretty restful night, for we achieved eight hours of very deep sleep, and were beautifully warm and cosy in spite of the cold world outside. The dogs hear the sound of our chatter, and I can hear the bell on the collar of Rover, my lead dog, being shaken as he uncurls to greet the morning. In our tent, we would always set the alarm a little early, so that we could enjoy the luxury of 20 minutes dozing after our mug of cocoa, and allow the porridge to digest, and our thoughts to run their own course. Dougie is still cook, so I get dressed first and slip on the clothes that I had so meticulously dried the night before, and probably stow the spare socks and duffel slippers in the mouth of my sleeping bag, where they would be available in the evening. Barely an hour after waking, I stick my head out of the tent door, say good morning to the dogs, and start the day's work. I shout to Dougie what the weather is like and how much the tent has drifted up during the night. Outside, everything is covered by a foot of snow, but the snow shovel is where I had left it, and it doesn't take long to dig everything else free. Alarm clocks may sound rather luxurious, but they are not so. Look at them from the point of view of the first man out when the morning is bitterly cold and the wind is strong. Nothing is more irritating than creeping out of the tent, dead on time, into the coldness outside, to find that the other tent failed to wake up, has not yet finished breakfast, and that there will be half an hour's delay. The day's travel will have got off to a bad start. Outside, I will be busy reversing the camping routine of the night before. I clean down the sledge runners and ice them with water passed out from inside the tent, and then turn the sledge over and start to load it with the boxes that have been holding the tent down. By the time that Dougie has packed up all his bits and pieces inside, it is only necessary to lift the tent off the pile of bedrolls and rations that he has put in the centre of the ground sheet, load the whole lot on top of the sledge, and lash it up. There is still a bit of digging to do around the second sledge, but with two to do the work, it won't take long, and when that is done, it only remains to untether the dogs, clip them on their traces, and stand by for the word go. We ourselves are still beautifully warm, for we have been working hard, and with luck, the other tent will have worked at the same speed, and we will all be ready to proceed at exactly the same moment. As long as we act wisely, we will stay warm all day. If life becomes strenuous, we must pull the anorak out of our trousers and let the air circulate inside to prevent us sweating. But as soon as we stop, we must close our windproofs again and keep the warm air in. On this occasion, it is a fine, windless day, and life is astonishingly pleasant. John, with the lead sledge, 
is taking the brunt of the work, for his dogs are breaking a new trail in six inches of powder snow, and it is taking all his powers of concentration to keep them on course. I, as tail end Charlie, have a very easy time, for the track that I use has been well consolidated by the teams ahead. My dogs are hauling easily, and as Dougie finds me continuously on his tail, he drops off a 50-pound ration box, which I retrieve and take over, and the two teams run at a more even pace as a result. Exactly two hours from the time of starting, John halts for 10 minutes to give the dogs a break and to allow them a few mouthfuls of snow and a well-earned roll. There is a certain trade unionism about dogs, for they have fixed ideas about what constitutes work or rest. Lamp post drill must always be carried out in working hours, and as soon as they are roused from their rest, with a cautionary, Now dogs! They all decide to demonstrate quite clearly why they must have just two minutes more. The ten minutes is well used by Dougie, for he takes a quick round with the prismatic compass and makes a sketch of the local mountains, which I have already photographed. We restart and repeat the performance at hourly intervals for the rest of the day. The midday halt is obviously a little longer. We collect our thermoses of hot orange juice from the snowproof bags hanging from the handlebars, lay out our skis side by side on the sunny side of the sledge, we sit on them and prepare to enjoy the only fully social meal of the day. John produces some joke that he had heard the night before in the ITMAR program, or sees what offers he can raise for half a bar of chocolate in exchange for other items of current rations. Each of us extracts his lunch from his own personal ration bag and prepares the meal. The knob of butter is so cold that it cracks like a boiled sweet. The chocolate is hard and brittle. We dilute the orange juice with snow, stir it with our fingers and drink it back. Within 20 minutes of stopping, we are again on our way. After four more hours, it is time to make camp and we are back where this letter started. End extremely long quote. Some people applaud and even try to recreate the hardships of earlier eras of polar travel, and I think Walton did a better job of putting the matter in perspective than I ever managed, and I quote him wholesale once more. Quote, Physical toughness was certainly necessary in the past, but it is ungracious and forgetful of the polar heritage that is ours, to pretend that it is so still. A member of a modern expedition is still capable of surviving hardships if they arrive, but now he uses his head and the recorded experiences of his predecessors to keep those hardships at a sensible, respectable distance. End quote. Some malocentric phrasings in there, but the fundamentals are bang on. Greetings this episode going out to Nate and Richard, who've always looked out for me and mine. <laughs>